Geek Top 5, Quarantine Edition. There was time now. There was, was all the time I needed. Okay, so, Geek Top 5, Quarantine Edition. Uh, Yay! (laughs) Yeah, I think we're okay with that. We're a little rusty. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we're at home. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, how how are you doing, Jess? How's quarantine treating you? Ah, you know, uh, I'd really like to go outside, so it is the opposite of what I want, but that can be said for everybody. And you? Except for shut-ins. Uh, I am okay. Uh, it's It's been interesting working from home for the first time ever, and uh, especially doing it with a two-year-old running around. <laughs> I bet. Mm-hmm. But people didn't tune in to listen to that. They can get that from, well, from pretty much everywhere these days. What have we got? Well, we've each brought a list this time. Uh, just a big list of notes of things that we're doing to keep busy. Yeah, we're trying something different uh, this time around with Geek Top 5. Uh, we are probably going to have fewer guests and more stuff like this. So I hope you uh, you like us. <laughs> well, fortunately, there are... Hmm, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me you'll keep that in. Yeah, sure. I'm not looking to do much editing for this anyway. This is the quarantine version. This is the laid-back, no-pants-on kind of podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it's All the right. first time I've been able to not wear pants during one of these recordings, and it hasn't bothered you. Well, I mean, you know, it wouldn't bother me either way, but that's a whole <laughs> different podcast. <laughs> All right, well, we are pressed for time, so let's hop into it. What do you have on your number five? Okay, so uh, this actually started pre-quarantine, but now that it's now that we're in this situation, and uh, I, I'm spending so much time entertaining Rex, my son, with with his activities... And he gets engrossed with those, but it usually takes up time I would be doing with other stuff. I have to focus on smaller things. So what I've been playing a lot of is Star Trek Timelines, a mobile game where you... Man, mute your phone. (laughs) Sorry. It's been a while. So Star Trek Timelines, it's a game where it's like uh, you got to catch them all sort of situation of all these different Star Trek characters. And then you level them up and get ships, and there's a lot of different things to do in it but it is a real time suck and because it's star trek it it really is in my wheelhouse yeah it seems like a lot of these mobile games these days have the collect characters as a primary motivation for playing Um, in some cases you know at a detriment to gameplay Uh, but and you wouldn't think at first thought that there were that many star trek characters to put in a game like this but oh boy you'd be wrong there's over 800 and there's still some that i feel like are missing like, like if you go back to the original series, there's the episode where, um, where Doctor or sorry, where Nurse Chapel's husband has created these androids to help him, and he's trying to make an android of Kirk, and they've got the big lurching android, but they don't have the lovely assistant android, and she seems like well, if you're gonna have the one, you might as well have the other. I notice you're phrasing this as if to give the audience the impression that you don't remember her name. Uh, I think it's Andrea. It is Andrea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) lucky guess. Now, to be fair, a lot of them are cheating. A lot of them are like, you know, Harry Kim and season two Harry Kim and Harry Kim with a bowl cut. 
and alternate universe Harry Kim. It's like, like they, they really stretch it for some. Well, re- remember the episode that Fomke Johnson guest starred in of The Next Generation? She's She played Jean Grey in the X-Men movies, and she showed up as this sort of empath, romantic object that, that accidentally falls for Picard. There are two versions of her in the game. Uh, divided by what? By choice of clothing? Or? Yeah, like one is betrothed... Uh, Man, I don't remember her name, but betrothed Kamala, I think? Anyway, betrothed one of her and regular one of her? I don't know. And one of them is a two-star character and the other is a four-star character. I kind of feel like we should get into, like, the gameplay of the game, but there really isn't any, is there? Like, the, the big thing is getting the characters. Like, that's what's the most exciting. That's yeah. what you keep running up to me with your phone to show me <laughs> that you got, like, drinking Scotty or whatever. Oh, I was so excited when you got the Gorn. Yeah, yeah, the Gorn Captain is actually pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, so it's there's there's not much to it. There is a story, but I have to admit, I just sort of skipped through that, and because it's, I don't know, I just I'm not interested in this made up story where all to justify why all the characters are there. It doesn't really matter to me. I, I go through the game things, but I find a lot of the time I just do like fast mode to speed through it, so I can level characters up faster and get more characters. And ships, and I think that's one of the interesting things about it that sets it apart. There's there's at least two different game modes in it. You know, you play certain missions where you're just sort of matching things, and then you play another mode where you're ships, and you have to go and fight other ships. I do like the ship battles best. Yeah, that's what I thought would, would hook you when I started showing it more than the characters. Yeah, that's fair. There's so many ships in it. I was very excited to get uh, Hockey Tom Paris because it combines my interest in hockey and my interest in Star Trek in such a delightful way. Unfortunately, there's Tom Paris, but what are you going to do? Right, as long as there's hockey in it, you're willing to forgive it. Exactly. Okay, fair enough. Well, jumping over to me, uh, so on my number five, also a video game, uh, technically also a mobile one because it's on the Nintendo Switch. Um, also started before quarantine, but keeping myself busy through it with Fire Emblem Three Houses on the Nintendo Switch. Um, originally came out in July last year, but they dropped some DLC with some new missions back in February, so I'm catching up with that. Um, Fire Emblem is pretty much a storied series on the Nintendo. It came out in Japan in 1990, and a little later here, it's turn-based tactical strategy. Okay, so so to my mind, the first time I heard anything about Fire Emblem was in one of the Smash Brothers games. Like in I Melee, am, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's the first time anyone, anyone in the West had heard of it, essentially. Is that where you first heard of it? Absolutely. They dropped mm. these two guys with swords into Smash Brothers, and I said, what the heck is that? Uh, then they started slowly releasing the games over, and they became pretty popular. I'm, I'm trying to think of a more common analog. The closest one I can think of is, like, chess. Mm. Like, each person has pieces, and they move differently and are stronger against other pieces, and you move them against each other, except that in this case, the pieces are all, like, characters in a fantasy drama, and they're all knights or archers or mages or what have you. Um, this one in particular has a neat sort of metagame to it. The, the rough plot of the game is that you're a professor at essentially anime Hogwarts. Okay. Complete with the different you know, groups of different students in different houses and such. And so instead of an army, you have a class that you're sort of teaching combat skills to. 
and a big part of the game is building up relationships between these characters, and it turns into, I mean, go figure, it's a video game, things don't end well, and before long, like, these houses are fighting each other, very Harry Potter again. Um, but the big takeaway from this game is that the characters in it are phenomenal. They are so well written and so well acted, and every character has an interesting backstory and interesting things that they're doing, and they relate to each other always in interesting ways, depending on which ones you're using and who gets to know each other. It created an incredible sense of replay value. In this game, very early on, you have to pick you know, the Fire Emblem equivalent of Gryffindor or Slytherin or whatever, and you're pretty much stuck with that. But once you finish the game, you want to go back and try the other house and see what's going on over there. And to hmm. really get the big picture of the story, you want to play through each house. <laughs> wow, Which... wow. So how many hours are we looking at here? I'm confident I have done everything in the game, and I put it down at about 300 hours. Oh my god. Uh, so how much of that is thanks to the quarantine? A fair amount. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not going to lie. I was doing it, it again. It came out a little bit earlier and I was playing a lot of it there, too. But, you know, not being able to leave the house has made a difference. Um, if you're looking for something to do and you have a Nintendo Switch, like this is a phenomenal game anyway. It's fun to play and it's a good story, but you will fall in love with these characters. It's the, it just I, 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 I my heart pangs for some of the things that happen to them. So it, in it's the- neat. In the other games, how much does the story play into it? Is it as is this especially engrossing? As far as storytelling goes, they've always been fun fantasy bits. Um, you know, just as good as any other fantasy game out there. But they've recently been experimenting with more stuff. Um, the second most recent game was a mobile, a, a DS rather release, where they had a similar splitting paths, although they sort of went the Pokemon route, and you actually had to buy different games for mm. different sides, which I see as a criminal offense, and I refuse to buy it. Right, <laughs> yeah, that does seem like an especially egregious cash grab. Yeah, not a fan. Um, but they are trying to do more stuff with it. I think somebody there was smart enough to say, like, okay, we've got the pieces down. Like, move the sword guy here, move the bow guy there. Like, that works, and we don't have to change it up much, but we need something else new to sell. Yeah, it does sound like if the game is always that, it gets... I can imagine it getting a little repetitive from, from game to game. I was finding that even with the Batman Arkham games. Like, after the first one, the second one just felt like more of the same, and it kind of lost me. Yeah, you need new things to to spice it up. And I guess the Arkham games tried to do that with things like the Batmobile, which was a disaster, but they tried. Mm. They tried. It's um you can respect them for it. Um any case, Fire Emblem Three Houses, you can you can download it today on the Switch. It's been out for long enough that it's not even full price. Um, there's uh, some season pass stuff. Uh, most of the DLC is cosmetic, but there is a DLC chapter, the one that released this year, uh, The Cindered Shadows, which adds four new characters to the game and six missions or so devoted to them, but they also integrate into the main game and can, like, that. so if you're playing through again, then you have these four extra characters who add new things and new abilities and new classes, but also new dialogue and new, like, corners to the story and their own side plot that's it, it's it's really worth the price and i rarely wow. say that for dlc <laughs> but it comes highly recommended all right so my number four is i've been using some of this time to catch up on some comic book reading 
I at Boxing Day, I there were digital sales, and I bought a whole bunch of comics, sort of knowing in the back of my mind the chances of me actually reading them were slim, or at least it would take me a while. But now that I've got all these hours to fill, I'm definitely cracking into them at a faster pace than I expected. So the ones, they're sort of evenly divided between new stuff and pure nostalgia. And when I was a kid, I didn't buy any comic books regularly. The only things I got were things at garage sales or dollar bins, and it would just be a grab bag. But one of the books that I loved, I always loved the X-Men, but there was a spin-off book called Excalibur that I loved, and it was sort of like the British X-Men, Nightcrawler and Shadowcat, end up in the UK and they team up with Captain Britain and his girlfriend Megan and this sort of... (laughs) Megan doesn't get a superhero alias? No, no, oddly enough, but she's like this shapeshifter who who draws her power from the planet, but she's she was treated very badly as a child, so she's very dependent on everyone around her. She's got this sort of like childlike mentality. It's it's a... I don't know. It's the first... 20 or so issues are mostly by Chris Claremont and this artist named Alan Davis. And as a kid, I think I liked the art and I liked the story, but reading it again now, the art is so incredible. Like his figure work is amazing. Everything is so clean and crisp and the expressions on people's faces are amazing. Like you can, you could strip away all the word balloons and narrative boxes and probably still be able to follow the story reasonably well. That's a that's a really cool pitch, actually. I'd try that out. Alan Davis, he's incredible. Is he doing anything? I mean, I recognize the name Chris Claremont, but I don't recognize Alan Davis. Has he done anything else I might recognize? Or, um, I mean, Excalibur is kind of his claim to fame. He created this this family for the Marvel universe called Clandestine, and he would he would write and draw them. Eventually, in Excalibur, he came back and wrote and drew it. Um. The other, the other pitch for Excalibur that might draw you in, well, maybe our listeners more than you, is that uh, it's it's sort of X-Men by way of Doctor Who. That also sounds like a fun pitch. So X-Men, but time traveling and with space magic? They go, they at a certain point in the series, like issue, I don't know, 10 or so, they get this train that lets them travel to other dimensions. And so they're always in a new place meeting different versions of themselves weird stuff happens there's all these uh, magical entities it's all very British but also X-Men comic books it's it's a really neat mix and I don't think I fully appreciated it as a kid I just was like sort of wowed by it being a Nightcrawler led team and having it be British but reading it now you can really see the Doctor Who influence and again man Alan Davis is incredible Cool. Okay, so the Excalibur, Chris Claremont, Alan Davis run. Yeah, that's. Uh, I got like the first three trades, and I've been slowly working my way through them. All right, taking over again. My number four. Uh, not exactly the same thing, but uh, not a video game, which is rare for me. Uh, actually, we've been doing, and this is sort of you too, as we've been doing a fair amount of video D&D. A sort of Dungeons & Dragons by way of Skype. Um, not nearly as much as I'd want, actually. Um, we So we play together in a group that, because of real life, tends to meet like once every couple of months, maybe once every six weeks. Um, and the downside to quarantine is that we can't meet, but the, the upside is that nobody has to commute anywhere. So we've sort of figured things out using Zoom, uh, like everybody else on the planet right now, and we're right. dragoning and dungeoning, and it's kind of a blast. 
it's it's definitely been a nice change of pace to be able to do it more regularly. Yeah, there's something about uh, role playing. Um, when you play a character for a couple of hours once every six weeks, it's difficult to do any. Like I think the DM pointed out, like, hey, now we're going to have emotional investment, <laughs> right? You know, as a huge improvement over usual. Um, I feel like we probably don't need to explain what Dungeons and Dragons is to the audience. I know we've talked about it before on the show, and it's kind of hip now, actually. Hey, man, it's been a while since we've had a show. It wouldn't hurt to do a, a brief primer on it. <laughs> uh, man, so collaborative storytelling. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons was letting you pretend to be knights and wizards before there were video games to do it. It is essentially a vehicle for... You remember when you were running around as a kid playing, whatever it is, cops and robbers, and I got you, I got you, no I didn't, no I didn't, or no you didn't, I suppose. (laughs) Yes, I do. Yeah, Dungeons and Dragons provides a framework to settle that argument. So you let your imagination run wild. There's, so, the, so the dungeon master is the person who's running the game. They're telling the story, or at least setting it up, setting up a situation for the characters to be in. So you know, you're, you're in the woods, and suddenly you're surrounded by orcs. What do you do? Well, I swing my sword, and I kill one. Well, Dungeons & Dragons provides, okay, so here's how it's going to work. So if you're this guy, and this is how your sword, this is how effective it is, and you roll dice to determine like whether it hits or not, and depending on who you are, you have advantages or disadvantages, so the guy who's really buff needs to roll a lower number on his dice to hit a target with the sword, whereas somebody might be really weak but might be a magic person and be able to cast a fire spell. And if you want to cast a fire spell, here are the dice you roll, and this is how that works, etc. That is the very rough, plain version of it. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with it, you should check it out. I think uh, Stephen Colbert did one fairly recently in his show. Actually, it might not be fairly recent anymore. Uh, but just to sort of show off how it works, and people like Matt Mercer and Chris Perkins are becoming sort of internet famous in that social media kind of way for running yeah. Dungeons & Dragons games. They do, well, Mercer I know is Critical Role. Is it the other guy as well? Yeah, uh, Chris Perkins, uh, he's on Dungeon Delve, uh, but he's also, like, he works directly for Wizards of the Coast. He's, like, an actual game oh, designer. Okay. Um, so a lot of, like, sort of celebrity games he's there. He does the Acquisitions Incorporated stuff for the Penny Arcade people. Um, that's the first one that comes to mind, since I'm a huge PA fan. And our our frequent guest, Jim Zub, he runs a, a D&D group, and they have their own podcast. They're called the Danger Dice Gang. There you go. So yeah, it's it's popular. If you haven't been, you know, like especially on social media, if you've been listening to podcasts, you've probably at least heard about them. Um, it's but it's a lot of fun, and it's a good way for us to stay in touch, and it's a fun thing to do. And that is one of the favorite things I'm doing over quarantine. Uh, it just has a downside. It since it requires so many schedules to coordinate, it's still a little tricky. You can't just sit down on your couch and decide to do it. But I'm having a blast. Okay, so my number three is the Adam West Batman series. (laughs) (laughs) A few years ago, I got, uh, for my birthday, thanks in part to Jesse, I got the the whole series on Blu-ray, and it came with a digital download code. Little did I know at the time that I would be using the digital downloads of things so much more than physical media, but that's the way this is all shaken out in the last few years. And, you know, I intended to watch it at the time, but... Other stuff got in the way, I'm trying to keep up with what's current, and it sort of kept falling further and further on the back burner. Now that I got a kid, and it's pretty close to age-appropriate for him, 
I, I put it on for him to entertain him, and I end up getting sucked into it. I mean, we're mostly watching third season episodes because for whatever reason he's really into Batgirl, and she shows up in the third season. It's it's just so fun watching them and finally getting to appreciate this the this gift that I got and and being able to watch it so much of it in a row and appreciate the jokes and appreciate all the time and effort that went into this very silly show. It's it's been a great experience. It's interesting to me that a lot of people these days, when they think of Batman, they go straight to the Christopher Nolan stuff. Uh, Batman today is very dark and very brooding, and I, and I just I don't just mean dark in tone. I mean visually, like everything is at night and black, bright. Um, which I suppose owes some to sort of like the the Val Kilmer, Michael Keaton era of Batman. But people don't, I think, go back that far when they're thinking about it. Well, anyway, I wouldn't the, even I wouldn't even include the Val Kilmer and the the George Clooney stuff. That was skewing well, a lot I, more I, in this I, direction I, than that. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> didn't say Clooney for sure. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right about Kilmer too. Um, but it's just when I say Batman, I, my mind doesn't immediately go to the '60s one, and it is so different. Yeah, I mean that's one of the like I read this thing that Frank Miller said. Frank Miller is the guy who's sort of single handedly credited for returning Batman to a, a real dark story. He wrote the Batman Year One storyline, and he wrote and drew the Dark Knight Returns, and those are two of the most iconic stories in the Batman mythos. Like you know how. When you picture Batman's parents being killed, uh, the her, his mother's pearl necklace breaks and pearls go everywhere. Yeah, seen that a lot. That that was that first showed up in the 1980s in Batman Year One. There's 60 or I guess 50 years of comics before that where that wasn't a trope. That wasn't part of the the story. And now the pearls basically symbolize Martha Kent. That, that not Kent. Yeah, Martha. I know. <laughs> Martha Wayne. Martha Wayne. So bloody movie. Yeah. <laughs> so he said in this intro to a collection of Batman comics, he said that you can do the silly version, you can do this this the super dark version and Batman is such a flexible character that it works and it doesn't break the character and he can go back and forth and back and forth and it it survives that. And I find that so true and it doesn't work as well for other characters. Like, I've read some real dark Spider-Man stuff, and it doesn't really work for me. I feel like Spider-Man, he needs to be goofy and fun and having a good time. And, and sure, he, bad things always have to happen to him, but he always has to rise above them. There's there's a definite pattern to Spider-Man stories. And you don't have that with Batman stories. You know, every decade or so, the formula changes for what makes Batman work. Anyway, we're getting very off topic. The Adam West Batman is hilarious and amazing, and I have such a fond appreciation for it. The other thing that I rediscovered was a couple of Christmases ago. My parents got me a coffee table book all about the Adam West Batman series, and so I've been going through that and showing Rex pictures of it, and it's making me appreciate that gift, too. So, you know, have a kid and rediscover all the presents that you did that you took for granted when you first got them. <laughs> I guess there's two types of people in the world. There's people that think painting white face paint over a mustache is dumb, and people who think that it's awesome. I am definitely in the awesome category. That Cesar <laughs> Romero Joker is so good. I have such a strong appreciation for that performance now because he's so good at oscillating between just being zany and, and insane. Ah, oh, so good. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, my number three uh, is back onto video games. Uh, this is an older one that I got to late. I've been playing a lot of Hitman 2 lately. Um, 
if Hitman's developed by IO Interactive. They're a Danish video game company, and this is pretty much what they're known for. Um, Hitman came out way back when, but Hitman 2 is the newest one. It was released in November of 2018, and I missed it. I completely missed it. I started playing Hit the Hitman, the Hitman predecessor to this game because it showed up as one of those monthly free games. Give it a try, and I love it. It's great. Wow, those uh, those monthly gaming things that they do on the PlayStation uh, subscription service, they, they really work, huh? They really work. Hitman is a puzzle game disguised as sort of a stealth action adventure game. You're a hitman in a very a tr- sort of traditionally Mission Impossible level convoluted spy story. And each mission or each level of the game is go and knock off this target. But you can't just run in there guns blazing like it was Wolfenstein or Counter-Strike or something. You have to be quiet and subtle about it. And a lot of the game is, okay, how am I going to get to this person? How am I going to overcome these challenges? How can I do this so that I don't get caught? And how can I get out? And the game rates your performance. Like, there are some obvious ones. Like, non-target killed is a big is a big deal. You lose a lot of points for that. Your best possible score is essentially being in and out and nobody noticed you and nobody even knows what happened and the target just seemed to have some kind of a crazy accident. And solving that stuff, figuring out all the different ways permission to do it, is addictive. Hmm. So I, I know with the previous Hitman games, they I, I only really played the first one. The, the series, much like Batman, sort of lost me after that first game. But in that first one, it got pretty story intense. Like you got to learn a lot about his background and, and you sort of, it became less episodic and more about finding out more about your past and stopping this horrible organization that created you. Is that still a factor in this? That is still a factor, and that's almost exactly how the story progresses. You hit the first few targets, and then you start to realize that they were all connected by a thread. And you start following that thread, and then other characters start showing up in cutscenes. And there's a lot of dramatic spy talk. There's a lot of, like, okay, good, now I have the thing. Thank you for your help. Oh, don't thank me. I just killed you by giving you that. Oh, yeah? Well, that makes us even. Bang. Nice. Yeah, just, you know, spy stuff. It's fun. It's fine. But it's just, like, there's so much to do. The game almost starts off a little hand-holdy. You get, uh, so one of, the, one of the first targets, you can overhear a conversation. It's like, oh, the target, this guy has a preferred drink, a preferred cocktail. And we want, it's specifically been requested to make for him. And as a player, you can go, oh, I got, okay, I can see where this is going. But the game, very obviously, it's like, okay, step one, get a waiter's uniform. Here's where you can find a waiter. It's like, oh, okay. And you can play through those, but as you do, you start to uncover other opportunities. And there's occasional hints in the form of a checklist where it's just things like like they'll show a picture of something or they'll give you a funnily phrased. Um, okay, here's an example. One of the targets is a rock star, and the challenge is called Oops, I Did It Again, the song mm. reference. <laughs> and as you play through the mission, as you're picking up information, learning what's going on, you find out that this rock star recently murdered his girlfriend. And there's a very complicated way to set it up where you get him into a position where he actually kills one of the other targets for you. You pit these two people against each other who don't like each other. Okay. Yeah. So you set up these complicated webs. It's very cool. And the replayability is through the roof because there's a thousand different ways to do it in every mission. And you want to see them all. And the more you do, the more you learn. It's a blast. 
that that really reminds me of the first game where I I don't replay games very often, not not nearly to the extent that you do. And that game, I played each of those levels dozens of times. It helped that it was a relatively short game, but I would go through those missions over and over again, and I had so much fun every time. And I would, you know, I did try and find different ways to do it, but I also had, like, favorite ways of completing each level. And this is right up your alley, then. It's great. Excellent. All right, so... The number two on my list is Movie Trivia Jeopardies. Now, I've found in my life, especially in my adulthood, I've realized that there are things that I want to do, and um, if I don't initiate them, they're probably not going to happen. So, you know, I wanted to put on a little stage play or, or be involved in something like that, and for whatever reason, mainly because I didn't try or try out or audition for anything ever, that wasn't happening. So I put on this whole silly production of uh, The Christmas Carol in uh, the back room of a bar and had a blast doing it. And, and so one of the things I wanted to do a few years ago was do these movie trivia things, but no one, for whatever reason, was creating those for me to do. So I started <laughs> making them myself. There's this website called Jeopardy Labs, and you can make these Jeopardy boards where you make categories, and there's five questions per category, and I would do them for people in my office. And they were a good way to, you know, kill time and bond with your colleagues, and, and it was a good way to socialize and at lunchtime. And I, I still do them, like, once a semester. I, I did it. There was a strike going on of our teachers. I work at a college. And so we didn't have much to do in the office. So I was doing them once a week. And they were so they were so well-received that I started doing them once a semester, once everything ramped back up. And now I found a way to do them through Zoom. And I've done them with some of my office people. We we got together last night, actually, and all played together. And it was a lot of fun. And it was good to see people in a non-work context playing this game and just catching up again and I've done them for some friends from high school who I haven't seen in a while and I really like doing it I like sort of being the the Alex Trebek of of this this quarantine it's been a lot of fun <laughs> it sounds like it. it it sounds like you kind of missed out on like before the, obviously before the quarantine but a lot of bars have started to do trivia nights lately and you know those guys get paid to do that <laughs> you sounded like Jonathan Frakes in one of those uh, beyond belief uh Clips. Have you ever been to a bar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's. I would like to do stuff like that, but uh, that requires probably more time and effort than I have. These are things that it takes me between an hour and two hours on average to put one of these together, and then hosting it is like thirty to forty minutes, and that's about as much time as I'm willing to dedicate to something like this without getting paid. So. <laughs> I don't know. It, I if I don't I'm, know. I'm just saying you could have a side hustle. It's a very popular thing to do these days. That's true, but I thought that's what this was. <laughs> I don't remember ever getting paid for doing this actually, <laughs> now that you bring it up. Right, I shouldn't be talking about that. Well, there's no money in this at all, Jesse. This is just for for our enjoyment. <laughs> right. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right, my number 2 um, the opposite of what you're doing. You're finding ways to meet and socialize with people. I'm hiding behind a book. I mean, it's quarantine. Everyone's reading, and I've been reading a few, but one of the things that's been keeping me busy is I've revisited my giant hardcover HP Lovecraft collection, my Necronomicon. Very nice. Um, the thing is the size of my head. It is several thousand pages. It's pretty much everything he ever wrote, and... 
so, someone once pointed out that at times of great like upheaval in the world, like people's uh, media attention turns to the dark. Like a lot of great zombie classics came out of the Cold War, right? Th- that sort of thing. So I, I feel like on a certain historical level, I uh, it's understandable that I am drawn to cosmic horror. <laughs> <laughs> Feels very appropriate. Yeah, and H.P. Lovecraft, H.P. Um, Lovecraft, an American author, um, wrote uh, the early 1920s and is responsible for, uh, if you know your tentacle monsters, your Cthulhu, the that kind of like horror from beyond our world, that was him. He, st- he jump-started that and set, of course, a tradition that has passed down through video games and role-playing games and TV and movies, like, yet to this day. Um, early this year, Nicolas Cage starred in a small... I don't know if it even hit theaters, but The, the Color Out of Space. It did. When we are coming back from that little weekend trip, we were we found that it was playing at the Carlton, I think, but... Yeah, but yeah think one esoteric independent hey, theater in downtown Toronto <laughs> um, does not a Cineplex blockbuster make. <laughs> Um, but I watched it with some friends. It was pretty good. It was, I mean, you know, it's a Nick Cage movie, so it has certain uh, tropes. But uh, it's still, its material is still very popular today because it still resonates. It's a lot of it is about hopelessness and helplessness and about things being so much bigger than we are and being you know, caught in the middle. I mean, there's a whole term for it that named after him, Lovecraftian. Yeah, Lovecraftian horror is a thing you'll hear a lot to carry a specific impression. Um, now, if you're listening to this podcast and thinking like, hey, these are all things I should try. I mean, it doesn't cheer you up. This isn't no. uplifting. <laughs> you're not going to read all these and put it down and go, ah, okay, I'm feeling a lot better. Uh, no, not really. If you want to like dwell on the dread, that's that's the book for you. It's or the ble- author. It's bleak. Um, also worth noting, I, I would feel a little bit guilty if we didn't mention that also, even for the era, Howard Phillips Lovecraft is just an unbelievable racist. Uh, mm. Like, even by the standards of the 1920s, and that is occasionally a challenge. Um, in a way, I almost kind of like how it adds to the horror. I mean, this was absolutely not his intention, but having some of his protagonists, you know, by today's standards, be kind of assholes... Like, so having bad things happen to bad people kind of works. Or, and even suggesting that the world he's created, that it, it doesn't feel right. Mm. Um, but like, it's sometimes it's just the, you know, word choice and the use of epithets and slurs. But sometimes there's one of his short stories, I think it's the horror at Red Hook or the Red Hook horror. I forget which way it goes. But the, the horrible nameless monster in that one is basically like people of different color from a different land. Like, ah. And, like, that's what terrifies the protagonist to the point of madness. Um, Subtle. Yeah, yeah. So, important note, um, you know how on some of those cartoons in Disney+, Plus they start off with, hey, it was a different time back then, don't judge us. <laughs> you gotta look at this the same way. But if you're into horror, if you're into creepy, if you're into dread, Lovecraft set the, set the standard, and you can find a lot of his stuff easily available these days. It's worth a read if you're interested. So the last thing on my list is another video game, and it is uh, it's it's the Spider-Man game that came out on PS4. Oh, good choice! <laughs> it uh, I had this sort of itch in the back of my head to get back to it. I I am very embarrassed to say that I was at like forty percent complete, and the game came out in twenty eighteen. So it has been a while since I've played, but since I started up again, I have gotten right back into it. It took me, uh, you know. 
10 minutes or so to figure out the controls again. They're, they're not the most intuitive. But once I got back into the swing of it, it's <laughs> been... <laughs> the whip, it's been very good. And, and I, I love the costumes. I love the story. Like, the story is so gripping. Like, we go in from timelines at the beginning where I just skip through as much of the story as possible to this where I'm riveted by the story. And it's it's been great, and there's so many different gameplay modes and little mini games in it. It's it's a lot of fun, and all the collectibles. I think, especially for a sandbox game, and a sandbox game is a game where you're you don't there aren't a ton of rules as what you as to what you need to do. You can just sort of swing around the city, and there are things you can do, and there are things that you should do. But you can also just swing around and visit landmarks and take pictures of them. But I really want to continue the story in this. I don't often just swing around and complete little side quests. I, I'm always like, ah, i got to see how this plays out. I want to know what happens next. Everything in that game is so good. Um, I, I was like, I, I did the same thing as you. I wanted to progress through the story, but then I also wanted, I wanted to play more. And right. things with open world games is a lot of times those things can become a chore, but playing in that world as Spider-Man is so much fun. I don't know if it's just that the the web-slinging mechanic is perfect, because it is, uh, but it's just, when I see something, it's like, hey, you could go over there and maybe get a reward. It's like, not only do I want that reward, because it's probably a cool power-up or a cool new costume, but I want to swing over there, because that's (laughs) awesome. It's so much fun. That, That game is a masterpiece. I'm pretty sure it won some Game of the Year awards for the year it came out. It must have. It was people talked about it for ages when it came out, and I remember Twitter was just full of people taking pictures around New York City, and you know it, it's so close to how Manhattan actually is that you can you know find your own apartment building or the place where you work. The, but also the other touches, right? Like you can find the Ghostbusters firehouse in there. Um, I was crawling up the top of this huge building and suddenly noticed the big Avengers A plastered onto the side. I think I took a picture of that and sent it to you guys. Yeah, I I love going to the Sanctum Sanctorum, the home of Doctor Strange, because it's so iconic in the Marvel Universe. There's this like specific window that has to be there with this weird design on it. Uh, it's I, I love that. I was looking uh, yesterday, and I saw that you can go to the Wakandan Embassy, the where Black Panther is from. Yeah, there's a there's a small office building and the plaque outside. It's like Murdoch and Nelson, like legal or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I saw uh, another place you can go to the Alias Investigations, which is Jessica Jones. Right, right. It's it's a wonderful world that they've crafted. And but also, I mean, we've already said all this about Fire Emblem, but great characters and great acting and great writing. Yeah, they they make these. They've taken liberties with the comics, but I'm always curious to see where they go with it. A lot of the times when you know they do something like this, they sort of I find twist the character to the point where it might as well be someone completely different. But here, you still get the heart of the character, even though they're in a different situation. Uh, like Dr. Octopus, so far, as, as far as I am in the game, is still your like mentor and friend, which is not really what he was in the comic books, but I'm still enjoying this version of him and watching his descent to madness. Yeah, you can see where it's going. Yeah. Also worth noting, minor spoilers, but worth it, is at one point when you're at a diner with MJ and the short order cook has a brief line, a brief inspirational line, and it's a Marvel Cinematic Universe-style cameo from Stan Lee. Wonderful. 
Oh, and I mean, and they modeled him perfectly so that he looks exactly like himself, and it's him doing the line, and it's the line is perfect, but just like that touch, like that extra polish on it, that's the kind of like gleam that everything in the game has, and it was made with so much love. Mm-hmm. Sure. Either way, fantastic game. Um, I believe it's still a PS4 exclusive if you're looking for it. My- I don't. Be- I got Sorry, one go more question for you. Is the uh, I, I don't have the DLC. Is it worth yes. investing in? <laughs> yes, the DLC is great. The DLC um, continues the story. It like it adds a few more mechanics, but it adds more story. Um, Silver Sable and Tombstone and a few other characters uh, and some loose ends in the plot that don't get wrapped up do get wrapped up in the DLC. I loved it. So is it something where I should get it while I'm still playing this, or should I? Can I wait till I'm finished the game? You can wait. It's the the DLC comes in chunks, and they like they take place in episodes following the conclusion of the main story. Okay, but for sure, I mean, if you like if you like Spider Man, you will like more Spider Man. <laughs> Excelsior! There you go. All right, my number one. Uh, man, it's a video game heavy episode. I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> My number one, uh, I have been playing the heck out of Doom Eternal. Uh, brand new Doom game uh, developed by id Software, uh, released March 20 of this year for all the big consoles for PC, and apparently for Google Stadia, if you're into that kind of thing, but I wonder if that still works during quarantine. Do you want uh, to explain briefly what Google Stadia is? It's streaming video games. It's so, like, you load up a video game on someone else's computer somewhere in the world, and they stream it to you. Okay. So as long as you've got a real great internet connection, that works like a charm, but uh, a lot of people on the internet these days. Anyway, Doom Eternal is the follow-up to the Doom reboot, uh, which came out in 2016. Uh, Rebooted the franchise to fantastic success. Um, And this takes everything from that game and cranks it up even higher. It is a heavy metal aesthetic. Uh, to the point where they hired all of these famous like people from like metal bands to create a metal choir to do some of the soundtrack. Um, let me see here. Uh, people, people from Static X, uh, from Aborted, uh, Black Crown Initiate, um, Tenger Cavalry, all, 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 all these big names in the metal scene. Uh, they found an octavist, this guy named Eric Holloway. An octavist with a K, uh, the word being to represent people whose voices can go way too low, just supernaturally low. Like, they put in all the effort. Um, The the new Doom games are unique among first-person shooters um, for two reasons. First, that they do an incredible job of empowering the player, which I really need, given what's going on in the world these days. (laughs) But they do a great... Just the power curve that increases and the story behind the game. Just, you play this game and you feel like an invincible badass. You are, like... Bit, very roughly, so the way we have like prophecies about the end times and the demons and the end of the world, hell has its own prophecies, and they're about you. You are the Doomslayer. You're coming to kick these demons' ass, and they are terrified of you, and that's, you hate them. That's pretty cool. Is that does that follow in any way with the original Doom games? Kind of, maybe. Story elements dropped in Doom Eternal seem to suggest that there's a through line of between all the Doom games. It's very much up for interpretation, half because the way the story is presented in this game is that it's not really about the story. 
Uh, Doom 2016 very famously in like at the end of its tutorial level has a character contact the player and say, okay, so here's what's going on. And the player's character just like physically tosses the computer aside and reaches for his shotgun and goes hunting. <laughs> feels, uh, feels very Duke Nukem sort of tongue-in-cheek humor. Well, not, not as crass as Duke Nukem. Sure. Um, but it's it's definitely got a very heavy metal. And when I say that, I mean I'm talking like 80s heavy metal. Okay, you know, so like, not like the, the comic book heavy metal. Well, maybe a little bit of that. You know, there, like, there are, you know, skeletons who are also cyborgs. And, <laughs> you know, and there, at one point you can find the Doom Marines, like, I guess the equivalent of his apartment. And he's got some big, you know, big electric guitars up on the wall that are made out of, like, lightsaber guitars. It's... It's of got course. a sense of humor about itself, but it's got that empowerment, which I really like, and it's also just got this incredible gameplay loop. Um, at its core, the mechanic from Doom 2016 was that when a, an enemy is almost defeated, you could close to melee range and sort of perform kind of like a Mortal Kombat-style fatality. They call it a glory kill. Um, so you're far away trading bullets, and he's almost done, and you can dash in and get this really cool kill. But that's how you restore health. Ah. So the way you play this game is you are constantly on the move. And, I mean, really, you have to keep moving. And having this gunfight, like, as opposed to a lot of games like Gears of War where you're sitting behind a wall which is kind of slow and boring. This, right. you are running, you are jumping, you are swinging, you're constantly... But no matter what you do, you're running out of ammo, you're running out of health. So now you got to like get at just the right point and a dash in, perform a few of these sort of fatalities, collect your health and resources, and back back out. And so, I, so a lot of the... There's a trend in video games right now, it feels like, of these games of hyper-difficulty. Is this that, or is it... It's not a the opposite. Op- it's not a roguelike. It's not designed in a way that, like, oh, you just can't win this round. Too bad. Um, but even on the normal difficulty, like, it's it's challenging. But it doesn't, like, death doesn't really stop you. You just reload from the last checkpoint and keep going. Um, certainly, I defeated the final boss just this past Sunday. Um, I was playing it for that one encounter probably for about three hours. Oh, my God. Which, yeah, which sounds crazy, but I was never tired. I was never so frustrated that I want to put it down. Like, I was constantly in the zone to the point where, honestly, it's exhausting. <laughs> I've been seeing social media posts of people pointing like their smartwatches are detecting a high heart rate while they're playing <laughs> the game. But it is, it's exciting, it's fast-paced, it's a great distraction, and it makes you feel awesome. And that's exactly what I needed I got what I wanted out of the game just because it's a great game, but I also got this great feeling that I really needed, given the way things are right now. Highly recommend. All right, well, those are our time killers, right, for this uh, this edition of Geek Top 5 Quarantine. That's all we've got for now, uh, but if you're still looking for things to do, those are things you should try. They are all a blast in their own way. Okay, so how are we wrapping this up these days? A special thanks go out to Jamie Ryu, the guy behind our theme song. Um, yeah, well, so special thanks to, you know, guests and hosts, Jesse and Graham, and to Jesse for doing the editing and Graham for doing the web work. So, yes. Yeah, the, the quarantine version of this show is a little less formal and a little less organized than previously, but long as we get it to you, uh, we'll be glad to try and make it work. We would still appreciate you giving us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We can be found on geektop5.com, on facebook.com slash geektop5, and you can email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. 
and uh, we'll be in touch again soon. So stay tuned for more Geek Top 5 Quarantine Edition. 